Hello and welcome to this week's Hey Podcast, where each week we're asking one of the speakers appearing at Hey 2021 to select their favourite moments from our archive. This week is a turn of writer, journalist and broadcaster, Gito Harry. In a hotly contested field, quite literally at Hay, it's hard to pick the highlights. So many thoughts, insights, ideas, so many moments and so many fascinating people, prompting thoughts, reflections and feelings. One event, however, does loom larger than the rest. One woman who captivated us, took us on a journey, made us think, laugh and cry, pacing the stage like a panther without a note, delving deep into her personal treasure chest of encounters, experience and readings. Dr. Maya Angelou is sadly no longer with us, but this performance in 2002, from the moment she stepped on stage, will resonate forever. When it looks like the sun wasn't gonna shine anymore, God put a rainbow in the clouds. Just imagine that. That song, that shred of a 19th century gospel song was inspired by a statement in Genesis. The statement is, rain persisted so unrelentingly the people thought it would never cease. And so God, to put the people at ease, put a rainbow in the sky. That's in, the, in Genesis. In the 19th century, some African-American poet, lyricist, probably a woman, I'm not sure about that, (laughs) said, wait a minute. We know that suns and moons and stars and novi and comets and so forth, rainbows, are always in the firmament. But uh, clouds can so lower and lower that the viewer cannot see that illumination. So it's best if we say God put the rainbow in the clouds themselves. Right in the clouds. So at the worst of times, in the meanest, the bleakest, the most miserable of times, there's a possibility of seeing hope. When it looked like the sun wasn't shining anymore, God put a rainbow in the clouds. I suggest that poetry is a rainbow in the clouds. I know it has been for me. And I believe it has been for African Americans and maybe for three or four or 5,000 other races and groups and lumps of people. I know that the first Africans were brought to what was to become the United States in 1619. Now, that was one year before the Mayflower docked, even left Plymouth, never mind. So, indeed, uh, how did the people survive? I suggest poetry, poesy, reading and writing, the very idea that people could define themselves, define their pain and their pleasure, their rapture and their despair, 
in some words and define themselves so well that other people could see and say, hmm, that's, that's, mm, I understand. Oh, that's how you feel, is it? One of the most poignant and powerful songs in the African-American diaspora, and the African diaspora as it deals with the African-American, is sometimes I feel like a motherless child. An amazing statement. And so whether it's sung by African-Americans or by people in new or old Delhi or in Tenement Square or Trafalgar Square, if it's sung in Durham or Durban, it's a human experience. And human beings understand that. This is who we are. We can actually say who we are in poetry. And so I would just say that, uh, you know, the first Africans were there and, and in the U.S., and so we wrote poetry, and, and today we are upwards of 50 million, and that's a conservative estimate. I know people who swear there are more than 50 million black people in the Baptist church. <laughs> They're not even counting backsliders and AME and CME and the three black atheists in the world. So, I mean, <laughs> at some point, you have to wonder, how do the people survive? I suggest the poetry, the poesie. You know, when a number of non-black people write about black people in romance, because they are so erroneously informed, they would have us believe that white people make love, and black, brown, beige, red, and yellow people just have sex. <laughs> they also think they have sex frequently and always successfully. <laughs> Not... <clears throat> but you can look in the poetry and see and hear romance. Here's a shred from a 19th century folk song in which a black man spoke about the woman he loved. He said, the woman I love is fat and chocolate to the bone. <laughs> and every time she shakes, some skinny woman loses her home. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you need to have that. Especially when a larger and more powerful society is telling you, you know, you're very nice, but I mean, this doesn't come off. I mean, and your hair, I mean, ooh, ah. And I hold out here in the back. You, know. You need somebody to say, not only is it all right, it's magnificent. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> so, there's a shred again, a 19th century folk song. Uh, Mr. W.C. Handy put this, a sh this shred into his 20th century blues. The black woman said, he's blacker. Then midnight, teeth like flags of truce. He's the finest thing 
in the whole St. Louis. <laughs> they say the black of the berry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sweeter is the juice. Mm-hmm. Now that's romantic poetry. That's exactly it. So I thought coming to to Hay again, and I appreciate that you invited me, um, coming to see Peter Florence again, and I appreciate that he invited me. I had some meetings yesterday with some people from book clubs, some readers, and I appreciate that they invited me. But I've been treated so well at Hay. I want you to know, had I not been invited, I'd have come. <laughs> you know, I'm just, just showing you that I have the courtesy. I thank you. But I would have been the tall black woman outside with a picket sign <laughs> saying they didn't invite me. So... I thought, I thought and thought, what would I do this time? And I decided, love poetry. Um, and love, I mean agape love, romantic love, erotic love, familial love, and certainly self-love. I think um, we don't take enough time to talk about romance. And I'm sorry to say the children are made smaller and weaker and more vulnerable because we don't talk about romance. And we ought to. We are a loving group, human beings. I mean, here we are, a group, according to certain scientists, meant to crawl through slimy swamps. We decided to to stand up to oppose the gravity, grow these opposing thumbs, and had the unmitigated gall to remain standing. Here we are, a a carnivorous group which has decided not only not to eat our brothers and sisters, who may be delicious, but in a... to go farther than that to respect them to accord them some rights and even to love them whatever that mystery is I had the privilege of joining Mayor Angelou at a private dinner that night where she delved deeper and deeper as she drained a bottle of single malt sadly she is no longer with us having died in 2014 at the age of 86 Though in poor health, she was lucid and active till the end. Not all of us live that long or that well, and the last year has made us ponder our mortality more than ever. So I was fascinated at our digital festival mid-pandemic to get the chance to interview Dr David Jarrett, a man who spent more than 30 years looking after the frail, demented and the old, about his profound and thought-provoking book, 33 Meditations on Death, Notes from the Wrong End of Medicine. Dr Jarrett had a very clear idea about when life is worth living and when it's time for, hopefully, a good death. 
Well, well, I thought I'd start with a, a, a an optimistic uh, view, and uh, I remember a few years back um, the TV cook Keith uh, Floyd um, had one of those wonderful deaths that we would all uh, love to have. He'd been to some beautiful restaurant in in Devon and had a fabulous meal with wine and brandy and being Keith Floyd, no doubt a few cigarettes between courses. And then he uh, went home. He was celebrating because he'd just got the all clear from his uh, um, uh, bowel cancer. He sat down in a chair and um, and died. And um, I remember Eddie Mayer on Radio 4 uh, was uh, interested in this and wanted r listeners to uh, r ring up with tales of good deaths that they've encountered. And there were wonderful stories about, you know, much loved uh, friends and relatives, you know, having a great life and then getting on a bicycle and cycling along and then, you know, falling down dead in a ditch. And we all love that uh, death. There's, you know, Bing Crosby, who was playing golf and got to the 18th hole and uh, then suddenly dropped down dead. And I do say in the book that I think he could only have been improved as a death if he um, uh, had managed to get to the to the bar before he died. But um, there are good deaths. Sudden deaths are good on the the person who dies, but a bit brutal on those who have to uh, uh, witness uh, the deaths. And in that chapter, yeah, I just you... talk about a, um, I was in my geriatric day hospital in Petersfield, um, and there was a knock on the door, and the nurses said there's a cardiac arrest, so I drop everything, I run out, and there's a, a lady outstretched, and they're pumping on her chest and doing all the uh, uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation things and um i saw a, a, a little old lady looking on as i took her aside and said oh do you know this lady and she said oh yes she's a friend of mine she's 99 years old always been well she cut her finger and was coming to the minor injuries unit in the hospital and suddenly had a cardiac arrest so i thought well this is the way to go and so we um, you can't really do a good cardiopulmonary resuscitation in uh, in a community hospital. So we, we called it a day and um, gave the lady, uh, uh, the witness, a, a cup of tea. And um, I felt that one sh should be able to drop down dead at 99 without too much fuss. And so those are the days when we could just uh, let things pass. You also mentioned when you mentioned Bing Crosby trying to get to the bar. Um, I was touched by your uh, recollection of Chekhov, who must be the ultimate, ultimate hero for somebody like you, um, yeah. starting to write, done medicine for decades. But there's a tradition among doctors, which I wasn't aware of, though my own father was a writer and a doctor. Uh, I guess in some ways he, he, he stuck to this tradition all his life. But the tradition is that you... You just end it all with a with a glass between two physicians, and 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 not a glass of morphine necessarily. Yeah, well, that that was a story that I saw in a British medical journal many years ago, and I tore it out and put it in a pile where I put a lot of other little interesting articles that I thought, well, I'll come back to them at one one uh, one time. And uh, Anton Chekhov had you know uh, terrible pulmonary tuberculosis. 
uh, as everyone knows, a, a, a physician and a, a, a writer. And he was, I think, um, at some spa town with his wife and he was deteriorating. They called a doctor who uh, uh, traditionally doctors are meant to give a, a, a bottle of champagne to a fellow physician when they're, they're dying. And Anton Chekhov took a, a, a swig of champagne and said, well, I haven't had champagne for a long time and then keeled over and, and died. And that was the introduction to a, a chapter on how doctors die, because over the you know many decades of being a geriatrician and looking after the continuing care, the long-term care of older people, I've looked after many uh, many doctors, um, and uh, I was always struck by the fact that there was never any fuss, there was never any. Um, unreasonable expectation from them or their family as to what what needs to be done. And um, I think because if you work with the old and particularly those who are dying, you, you, you have, uh, there's no rose-tinted spectacle view of death and none wanted life-prolonging uh, uh, treatments uh, that, that where there was very little chance of a of a favourable outcome uh, at the end. You lobbed in that word then, very um, very powerful word, unreasonable, and that's at the heart of this book as well. You think that modern society makes unreasonable demands uh, on doctors and unreasonable expectations on all of us. You talk about the, the rusty hand of the law dangling over you when you're taking these uh, life and death decisions in hospitals. But it's parking the legal side of it now. You think that basically pa patients have become too demanding in a way, or, or, or more often than not, the relatives of your patients have become too demanding. Uh, yeah, I think they have an unrealistic expectation of what can be done when people are very, very old, and when you're when you're you're fighting against the the um, uh, inevitable uh, deterioration that comes, you know, due to the, just not necessarily disease, but the aging process itself. And I, one of the points of the book was to try and uh, stimulate a, a, a conversation around what we would reasonably expect to happen uh, at the end of our life. And um, uh, I think it was uh, Rabbi Julia Newberger um, in her report at the end of the North Staffordshire um, uh, problem some years back that said that, you know, unless there is a national conversation about death, then doctors and nurses are going to become the whipping boys for our collective uh, inability to um, uh, to work out what is likely to happen at the end of our lives. So uh, yes, there's a need for a, a conversation, and sometimes I mean I think people do have um, there's all sorts of things surface when someone is uh, when, a, when a loved one is near the end of life. And unless people have given clear guidance, families feel they've got to fight on behalf 
of their uh, uh, elderly, frail, demented mother and make sure that um, everything possible is done. And a lot of the conflict arises around uh, artificial nutrition and hydration at the end of life. Now, um, yes, you, you tell us, you warn us basically that it's a lot easier, uh, well, it should be a lot easier to, to refuse to start feeding than actually to stop feeding. So that once that dynamic has been created, everybody's stuck with it. But nine times out of 10, if not more, it's not a happy outcome once you get down that avenue of feeding and maintaining people artificially. Yeah, well, um, this never, you know, used to be an issue when I um, when I started. Uh, tube feeding was was uh, was a, a rarity, um, but because these technologies are available. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that they should be used. If one is at a point in one's life where um, you're so frail and so demented that you cannot raise a glass to your mouth to feed yourself, then your life is, uh, is, is coming to an end. Now, there is great pressure uh, to put tubes in to feed people either through tube in the tummy or down through the nose but all this is doing is uh, it may not even be prolonging life but it's certainly prolonging suffering and there's this belief that um, uh, you know when someone is is dying they have to have fluids given to them otherwise they're being dehydrated uh, 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 to, to death Whereas if someone is dying, it's unlikely that they will actually be feeling thirsty. And there's some evidence that artificial feeding can actually um, make things worse. It can cause fluid in the lungs and congestion. The only proof, uh, the certain thing, is that artificial feeding makes relatives of the dying person feel better. That has been shown. Again, here was a hay session that helped many of us process issues and events that are beyond expression for most of us, helping digest the pandemic, confront uncomfortable truths and ponder where that leaves us. At another festival, the wonderful Welsh poet, Dr. Marere Topwood, held her hands and helped us reflect on one of the most haunting tragedies of the 20th century, Abervan. Working with the composer Carl Jenkins, Mered wrote powerful words for a cantata memoria on the 50th anniversary of a colliery slag heap sliding onto Pantclass Junior School, killing 116 children and 28 adults. But here I've chosen Mered's reflections on language at our digital festival in 2020, because her lecture captured the very essence of Hay and displayed her formidable grasp of at least four European languages. This thing called language is words, is music, is grammar, is communication, and its meaning, it transacts, it conveys, it suggests, and listen to this, it imagines, it thinks. Because there is a relationship, isn't there, between language and thought. Can you think without language? Yes, what about the baby toddler 
And beyond the babies, consider how as adults, the time we have had new thoughts and found it difficult to put them into language. The times when we've had to push the boundaries of the language we usually use and grapple to formulate new sentences, to paint new pictures with the old words. But those are more rare occasions. The occasions, dare I say, that sometimes bring the poems. And on the whole, we toodle along within the same old boundaries, with the language we have somehow determining the thoughts we think. As Wittgenstein put it, die Grenzen meiner Sprache bedeuten die Grenzen meiner Welt. The boundaries of my language mean the boundaries of my world. Bedeuten is a difficult word to translate. If you're really interested in thinking more about this what is language question, then I can recommend Charles Taylor's fascinating book, The Language Animal. And one of the images discussed in it is how a word in a language is like a note on a musical instrument in that it depends on the reverberations it causes throughout the whole instrument for its being. So holding that, what I'd like to do now is to invite you to think about language in the context of a bi or multilingual mind. And quite soon we see that having two languages is not simply a case of having two sets of labels for the same set of things, which is perhaps what a monolingual mindset has tended to persuade us to believe. After all, I can use seat and chair, two labels for the same thing in the same language. Adding kadair, la chaise, la silla, der stuhl and so on is not what it's about. No, having two languages is more like having two different sets, not of labels, but of things. Or at least two windows on the world where each window offers a different perspective, a different view, where different things become apparent. Let's take some examples to illustrate this point. So in Welsh, we don't say, I have something. This is not a concept for us. We don't express the relationship between us and things in this subject verb object way. That's not our view on possession. Instead of I have X, we say X is with me. My X gadavi, my geni X. I can't say I have a Porsche in Welsh, or in any language for that matter. I, I have to add that every time. I can only say there is a car with me. And being biased, I feel that this is rather an enlightened view. The Welsh language seems to remind us of the transience of the material. These things are just with us for now. Or take fear. Through the Welsh window, we don't see this as something that defines the fearful person, as in English, where the verb to be is followed by an adjective, I am afraid. No, in Welsh, we see fear as something that is outside of us and upon us. My oven arnavi, there is a fear upon me. In Spanish and French, then, fear is something that we can have. J'ai peur, tengo miedo. Yes, every language offers us a different window, a different way of seeing things. Let's stay with Spanish. Here we don't say when I'll come to see you because events in the future are treated, well, I like to say with more humility. The Spanish phrasing requires a nod to an element of doubt. 
using what's known in grammatical terms as the subjunctive mood. Cuando venga, not cuando vendré. More of a kind of when I might come. Because something unexpected might happen and make us all change our plans. Really? We used to have this in Welsh, panzerloif. Well done Spanish for hanging on to it. And we don't have to look at phrases. There are whole words in languages that offer the speaker another op op option for understanding, for seeing. Think of flowers. Lady smock. Llaith a gaseg in Welsh. Mare's milk. Or foxglove. Didalera digital. Fingerhut. Catrisha coon. Gwyniadir mair. Mary's thimble. What do the words make you see? And then there are those words we generally refer to as untranslatable. You know the ones that when you look them up in the dictionary, you'll find that at least half a dozen is needed to help you get it, more perhaps. And just as you were thinking that this was a virus-free zone, would you believe it that for Welsh speakers, one small mutation takes us to the word Govid, which we have known from forever, and what's more, known full well that it's bad news. The authoritative dictionary, Geriadir Abrivaskol, this is one of only four volumes, translates it as follows pain, grief, sorrow, distress, misery, adversity, hardship, trouble, tribulation, mischief, and even battle. And the last time I was here, well, there. I had the huge pleasure of joining Jackie Morris with Peter Florence to discuss the wonderful Lost Words publication because I'd had the joy of trying to create a Welsh version based on Rob McFarlane's beautiful poems. Challenging at times as an acrostic collection when the English is mute with four letters and the Welsh is Madhavashadur with ten. But during that discussion the word Wythawel cropped up, which is an old, single Welsh word, well, Pembrokeshire word to be more precise, for the sound of the wind in the leaves of trees at dusk or dawn. And then there's Torwino, one word for when the leaves on the tray, when the leaves on the trees turn inside out, sensing rain. And did you know? that there was a word just like we have for nose and forehead and lips for the part of the face that is from the upper lip down to the chin, mimrith. And once you have a word for something, it's so much easier to see. Those have all come from this glossary of the Domitian dialect that you can get from Llanerch Press. Yes, we know more than our fair share about lost words in Wales. Almost a whole lost language of them. If we're lucky, like fossils, we can still find remnants of them in surprising places. Travel, what, some 30 miles east from Hay, and we'll find English speakers still giving their town the Welsh name Molvern, Moilvrin, literally, the bald hill. Yet some 30 miles west to Epint Mountain, the remnants have left the land, lodging themselves deeply in memory, because 80 years to this very May, this very June, 219 people were displaced, 12, 
thousand hectares taken, 54 farmsteads emptied to make way for warfare. It was a for now arrangement, according to the Ministry of Defence. 80 years is a very long for now. And defence is a very strange word. The chatting at Blyneskirvaur, Gilvach or Haith, Llawr Dolai, what beautiful names of dwellings, fell silent to make way for the language of guns, one language whose sounds do not make music. And on that, let me share with you how the Welsh window offers us two views of peace, because we have two words for it, heddwch and tangnefedd. This latter is difficult to translate exactly because it's more than peace. It's something closer to a serene peace made. If you study its use across the centuries, you'll find that it seems always to occur between two parties, where these might be oneself and somebody else, oneself and the great being, as my grandmother often referred to the concept of God, a bored mawr, or between oneself and oneself, one's own body and soul or mind, a corfarenaid, tang nevedd. And we talked earlier about words and resonance. The other word for peace, heddwch, resonates deeply in any Welsh thinking mind. It takes us to the National Eisteddfod, a week-long and vast celebration of culture each August. Beautiful event. Thousands flock to enjoy music, dance, poetry, science, everything and where we announced the winners of the literary competitions with a good degree of pomp. Dressed up in a long white and gold gown, the archdruid greets the winning poet by calling out this phrase, A ois heddwch, is there peace? To which the gathered thousands call back, heddwch, peace. And all the while, the nervous poet is sat on the enormous chair that they get to keep. And above his or her head, another two or three druids are holding the biggest sword you have ever seen. But this is the sword of peace, whose blade never sees light of day. Can you imagine ceremoniously walking into a tent in a field in any other country, brandishing an enormous sword, sheathed or not, and solemnly asking, is there peace? confidently expecting the thousands gathered to answer calmly, peace. It's not going to happen, is it? Language is context. Sharing a language is sharing a memory. And one thing we can say with a fair degree of certainty, language has little meaning unless it's shared. And memory shared is belonging. Dr. Mareri Topwood, poet and professor, on the meaning of words, which I hope you'll agree, reminds us also of the pricelessness of Hay. You can catch Gitto talking politics at Hay 2021 with journalists Carol Walker and Steve Richards over on the Hay Player, where you can find over 8,000 more recordings of Hay Festival events. The Hay Festival podcast is brought to you by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>